You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. Um, Great. So, Steve, I imagine that, I mean, I, I once, I must confess, I was sat next to you in a meeting once, and you were, like, on your iPad... And you know what, when there's a screen, sometimes you just accidentally look. And I think I caught sight of your diary, which is one of the most horrendous things that I think I've ever seen. There was just, there was no gaps anywhere. <laughs> so I'd love to know, what does a typical week look like for you, if there is such a thing? Well, the thing is, um, the thing is, Joe jo very kindly sent me all the questions she was going to ask me. Perhaps you'll ask me some different ones. I had a quick look through, and there was only one question that I thought, oh, I, I, I need to check that out and find out what I do. So I wrote down on this piece of paper, (laughs) the piece of paper you gave me just now, uh, what I've done this week, because I don't have a typical week. Um, uh, um, This this week, I I began Monday morning with a meeting with um, some people called Born Capital, or a huge development company, and um, trying to talk to them about, well, in fact, they wanted to talk to me about uh, building some housing in London, building a hotel, um, all, sorts, all sorts of things. So that's um, uh, that's a, a deal, if you see, that we're working towards. Um, and then um, I went on and talked to the staff. Um, uh, lots of staff uh, meet every uh, Monday morning lunchtime online, and I talked to them about hope, um, biblical concept of hope and some theology around that. And then uh, I went down to Crystal Palace Football Club, who lost yesterday, because Oasis, what we now do is we provide all the education to all the kids who are training with Palace for the FA and the Premier League as an experiment which can be carried into other clubs. Because the real problem is that 99.5% of all the young people, who uh, boys, who get into football, so they opt out of their schools, you know, and there's something called hybrid learning. So two days a week, the premierships are able to take kids out of their schools for football training. So 99.5% of all those kids who've been told they're brilliant are one day going to be told, but we're rejecting you. And that leads on to loads of mental health issues. And the other tiny little group, they then by the time you're 17, if you're still playing for a premiership club, you earn £1,000 a week, minimum. Can you be, imagine being 17 and having £4,000 a month? And then it goes up from there. So whether you're accepted and become a young teenage multimillionaire or rejected, the mental health crisis and all of that and alcoholism, etc., etc., are huge. So... We do that, so I went down to see uh, Palace. Then I rushed Was that through. just Monday? That was more Monday. Then on <laughs> Tuesday, I mean? <laughs> yeah, on Tuesday, I had a long conversation with um, uh, a big local authority who want us to build children's homes for them, uh, which is, uh, so we can start doing that. I, I can't tell you where it is, because, you know, it's got to go through the cabinet and the budget. But you probably know that um, there are more and more kids in our society going into care uh, there are less and less people adopting or fostering um, that if you look at the justice system, um, 4% of children in our society are looked after, 
I think that's the biggest oxymoron in our language. I think it really means they're not looked after. But of that 4% in the justice system, in youth jails, YOIs and youth, you know, all the rest of it, Feltham's, 47% of all kids in youth justice come from 4% of the population. So we're, we're going to build, as some of you will know, an alternative to a youth jail, but we've decided that we're going to start building children's homes as well, which will care for, for kids, so I've had that. Right. Then, oh, then I went to the doctor because I'm, I'm 65. <laughs> because of <and> Monday. <laughs> no, I'm 65 and they wrote to me and said I had to go and have this checkup on my heart because, you know, I could keel over. So I went along, it took me ages to find this GP because it wasn't mine, it was somebody. And then they did this ultrasound thing. It took them all of about 45 seconds and they said, you're all right, off you go. <laughs> so that's kind of, anyway, there you go, I'm still here. And then, uh, oh, I've, I've, been, I've had endless, I'm not going to go, I will be here all day going through this. I've had a discussion with some theological colleges about the theology of autism because we need to think about people who are different and inclusion and how we do that. We run churches that don't, you know, aren't diverse. I, on, on Thursday night, I was invited to number 10 Downing Street by our great leader, Boris. And um, so I spent some of Thursday evening uh, discussing with Boris and, and <laughs> really randomly, Rio Ferdinand. <laughs> 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 discussing youth violence. I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, then, then, then on Friday, I had a conversation with Mopac. Mopac is, is the, it runs all the policing in London. And they've got a load of police stations they've shut down. And then we got this, London has this huge knife problem, you know, and crime. And I've been banging on to... Um, Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, ever since he's been in power, that if only they could give us some of the empty police stations that they don't use anymore, you know, just give us peppercorn rent, you know, we're not asking to be given them, and then we turn them into youth centres. This has gone on and on and on. But finally on Friday, we had a discussion about where these police stations are, and they said, so what, what kind of police station do you want? Do you want them big enough to do five-a-side football? What kind of shape do you want? I said, look, Police stations are police. Yeah, they are what they are. If, if they're tiny, we run a radio station or we set up a music studio. If they're big, well, we might do five-a-side or four-a-side football. We might, we might do all sorts of things. We might run gyms, but just give us the empty buildings. We keep kids off the street. We keep them away from violence. You prevent violence. People live longer. And, you know, every murder of a young person in this country cost the police 1.4 million pounds on average, so say the Treasury, just the police attendants. There were over 100 kids uh, killed last year, and we're going to top that this year. So, you know, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Anyway, there's some of the things I've done this week. <sighs> right. <laughs> I've done lots of... No, 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 it's... it's when it, the problem is, when you say it like that, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Anybody else's life sounds wonderful. It's a bit like Instagram, you know, kind of makes everything great. But it's, it's just slog yeah, yeah. and endless emails. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
maybe linked then what what do you think is like the best and the worst thing about leading oasis they might be the same thing they might be different well the best thing about leading oasis um by far is it like it, it happened to me this morning so i came in here and lyndon who i can't see now but i know he's around where is lyndon he's there so uh, lyndon offered me a cup of coffee uh, which thank you lyndon <laughs> and um lyndon asked me if i was pleased with what was happening here see and i said to lyndon didn't i, I said what I think is completely irrelevant, isn't it, one way or the other? I said, Lyndon, the question is, what do you think? And Lyndon said, did you say you've been coming here 51 years? Lyndon said, I've been part of this church 51 years, and this is the best. This is the best, because the church is growing. It's clear, you know, that it's grow, uh, growing, et cetera, et cetera, because you're all working together. It's fantastic. You know, I was talking to Rob earlier, and I know Rob's sown so many of the seeds for what's going on here, and others of you around the place. It's fantastic. So the best thing about leading Oasis is the, the energy that you have here and the sense of mission and purpose I see in all sorts of projects, uh, uh, you know, uh, around the country and, and churches and communities and schools and teams working on things. That's the best thing. Um, what's the worst thing? Um, the worst, well, I don't know how to answer that question. The worst thing is sometimes not being involved locally so much, even in Waterloo, um, where the you know the the, the first Oasis Church, I, I've been the senior minister. Well, actually, that that sounds very flash. I was basically pretty well the only person in the building, you know. So to start with, so it was easy to be the senior minister. I could have been anything. In fact, I was everything basically, you know. Um, <clears throat> but it, through the pandemic, um, you'll know Nathan Jones and Nath, who's worked with me. Um, at, for the last 10 years um, on the staff there as my assistant, he's become the senior minister and I've become his assistant, which is brilliant, which is really brilliant. But, but, and that's allowed me to do all sorts of other things around the country. But the hardest thing is not being involved so much in something local. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Great. So one of the things about Oasis Churches, and, and you may have seen this written somewhere, it's been a fairly new thing, but Nathan and, and, and some other uh, people that, that kind of lead churches in Oasis have talked about or defined these four characteristics. We've got these four characteristics as Oasis Churches, and one of them is an open and progressive theology. Um, so I just wondered, what does that mean to you to have a progressive Christian faith? I think all uh, faith needs to be progressive, always you know because the world is forever changing the situations we're facing the circumstances we face are always different they're always moving on um so faith has to be progressive anything we think is final anyway is only it's only provisional isn't it so you know so if i were to ask you um do you hope to grow as a person over the next five years yeah, of course you do. Who, who in here wants to say, no, no, I'm hoping to be exactly the same and not moved on at all and not grown intellectually or spiritually or socially or emotionally? Of course, we all want to grow. Well, if you grow, that means you leave behind where you were and you move on. So progression is, an, is a vital part of life. 
I think if you look at it biblically, you know, Moses said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the, um, in the middle of the Bronze Age, but I'm now telling you, I'm now telling you, forgive those who, who trespass against you. Love. So Jesus changes the ethic from eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was good in Moses' day um, because it was limiting retaliation. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a life for an eye. So Moses was saying, whoa, calm down. But it's still the concept of retaliation. Where the, where, whereas Jesus is, is really restored, bringing in a new ethic, which is about restoration. It's not retaliation. It's restoration of relationships. So, so you see that progression through the Bible. One of the funniest things, I think, is when people say, I believe exactly what the Bible says. And I always think that those people are very often clearly not read very much of the Bible because what it says in Leviticus in those early books of law is not what Jesus taught. The Bible moves on. People say, I believe exactly what the Bible says about marriage. It says an awful lot of things about marriage, but none of them quite comparing with what we believe marriage is today. Do you see? So, yes, faith has to be progressive to engage. And, and what about, for you personally, how can you see the ways that your faith has, has shifted over the years and how has Oasis sort of contributed to that? I think um, oh, my, my faith is always progressing. On, on the issue of LGBT inclusion, for instance, it was in, um, I don't know, about 12 years ago when, uh, I, I, that was a guess, right, that I wrote about... Um, uh, LGBT inclusion and the fact that I would conduct same-sex marriages and things like that. Um, uh, same-sex marriages, not just things like that. Same-sex marriages. <laughs> I don't know what things there are like that. <laughs> and um, the funny thing is, I, I got attacked by everybody. I got attacked by all the uh, people who um, still are attacking me this morning. Um, every now and then I look on social media at you know, the latest time I've been called the Antichrist or something. And it, it was this morning. In fact, I sat over there and because I, I sent a tweet this morning. So I'll tell you the tweet I sent this morning because I think it's an important principle. Um, here we go. Um, so I sent a tweet that just said it, said, it says this, God is not a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or a Sikh. As a Christian, the way I see it, God is the author and the lover of all humanity, regardless of belief, race, ethnicity, age, status, ability, disability, gender, sexuality, or gender orientation. And um, I've been slammed by all sorts of people for saying that. And it seems to me blindingly obvious that if God is love, love is all-embracing. So, so I think I'm a person in pursuit of what that means. So I was attacked by, when I said 
you know, I would do same-sex marriages. This was before it was possible to do same-sex marriages. By the way, I did them anyway. We just called them blessing services. You know, so you go down the um, registry office and get a civil um, partnership, and then people would come to Oasis Church in Waterloo, and I'd do a blessing service because if you live in most parts of the world, the civil bit of your marriage is always detached from the faith bit anyway. It's only here because of Henry VIII that we pulled the two together. Um, so that's what, what we did. But I was also slammed by members of the LGBT community who said, huh, Johnny come lately, you didn't say this before. And well, the point is, you're always moving on and you're always changing. It wasn't that actually I became suddenly inclusive of LGBT people. It was that the church in Waterloo, I worked there for 20 years, has always been inclusive. It was that I was, I was forever waiting for someone else to stand up and be public about the, the, the inclusion of same-sex marriage. And I, I used to talk to the OSIS trustees about it. And, um, I, and, they, and they were reticent. But I said, well, why don't I write a book under a different name? You know, like C.S. Lewis did. And, you know, <laughs> and then I realised that was stupid. I needed to nail my colours to the mask. And then our trustee said, but we'll lose money if you say this, Steve. So I said, well, why don't I write a book in my name and publish it after I'm dead? And then, <laughs> and then, then I realised that was even worse, you know. But I was wrestling with our trustees. I'm not blaming them because they were, they were saying, you know, we might lose money and then we employ people and what about their livelihoods and their security and their children and schooling and housing and all the rest of it. So it was a big discussion and finally we got there and we did it and we did lose a load of money. You know, one person cancelled £2 million to Oasis just like that. But actually, we found ways through that, and I, that's probably not the question you ask me anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> it was kind of on like your big shifts of faith. So that's yeah, yeah. that's definitely still relevant. And there's got to be a lot, a lot more. Do you know? I think that a big shift that's coming is. It, can I can I just say this? You see, the trouble with the trouble with the LGBT in, inclusion thing, uh, we got you know we got a huge LGBT group inside. Um, the church in Waterloo, for instance. But so I've got a friend, uh, his name's Lucas. He's absolute fantastic. He's a gay man, and he came to our church uh, because he found hope, and he found family, and he found belonging. And then he left. And he left because he wanted a Bible. He wanted all the Bible verses of, uh, you know, that are used as the, the clobber passages on, on LGBT people. He wanted a way of removing all those, but then he wanted to hang on to the rest of the brick wall. Do, do, do you see what I mean? He wanted to hang on to all that old stuff about God only loves Christians and he's not particularly sure about Catholics and he certainly hates Muslims and etc. etc. Et and if you, you know, if, if you commit, uh, commit suicide, I think that's an awful term. If a person takes their life, it's not them committing suicide, which is, suicide is like homicide, it's a crime. We should never talk about suicide. Somebody is driven and their only option to take their own life, that's, that's the thing. But it's not a crime. Mm -hmm. So they did not commit suicide. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but it, when, if you commit suicide, that's a sin and all the rest of it. So Lucas left the church 
And uh, it took him about a year, and then he came back. And I was just chatting to him um, this, this week, actually, something I've done uh, this week, sat down and chatted to him, and he said, Steve, I've realised that, that I couldn't just get into a whole load of old, in, in excluding theology, the acceptance of me as a gay man, I needed to go back to the whole Bible and think the whole thing through in a different light and understand what God's love means for everyone. He's a good man. He's come to a good place. So we're all on this journey together, aren't we? There are other issues coming up for us. Let me say, I think assisted dying is a huge issue. I think it's a massive issue. And, and I think the church kind of says, nope, every, every life's sacred. Of course, every life's sacred, but not when you prolong a life and you create agony for that person. I think that we, we, we are, I think the church needs to think about that issue. A good theology, not moving away from biblical principles, but understanding what it is to be loved with all the right safeguards, etc., etc. But I think that's another one coming down the line. And the problem is, if you just do the LGBT inclusion, and before that, it was, can divorced people be part of the church? Do you, do you remember that? You know, and can a divorced person be remarried and all that? So we always fall over the next stone unless we get a more progressive, biblically grounded, solid theology, which will allow us to cope with the issues that are coming over the hill at us. Okay. And I think you, you know that we've been doing this series, What If, where we've been kind of, you know, dreaming about what the world could look like and as we sort of hopefully emerge at some point out of COVID. So what I wondered, we've probably only got time for one, but what's your kind of big what if? What's your big dream at the moment? Something you're thinking about in terms of what, what you think the world could look like? Well, I think what if we could realise we are one human race? Um, when you look at the map, you, you, you know, those of you who are still at school, for instance, and everybody's been to school, you look at a map of the world and some of it's um, pink and some of it's green and some of it's ye yellow and there's, you know, there's France and there's Germany and here's Great Britain and there's America and there's Brazil and there's... I mean, that's all nonsense, isn't it? We are one human race. God is the author and lover of every human being, the creator of this wonderful globe that wasn't created with lines on it. And why are people drowning in the sea? Because we have not learned that we're one human race. We are willing to let children die at sea because we want to keep our border. And, and then you think about the COP26 thing. I was privileged enough to get to speak at COP26. I think everybody spoke at COP26, so it's kind of not kind of like no big deal. I spoke at the Youth and Education Day, and I think that's the greatest hope, actually. Young people who understand we are one human race. That's what I'd like us to grasp. Yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> And then maybe this touches on what you've just said, but I wondered what examples of that have you kind of seen that give you hope? And that, that could be something within Oasis, but something outside of it as well. Well, I see within Oasis this, um, this wonderful sense of 
drive to inclusion, you know, and so our badge, the Messio, that, you know, the badge of Oasis is our theology. It's all wrapped up. The O is messy because inclusion is messy. The O is uh, messy because inclusion makes strength. The difference is our strength, isn't it? And the O is messy because it speaks of the fact that God is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of diversity, not three dads, not three sons, a gang of sons, not a gaggle of spirits. God is, even God is a community of diversity. Of course, how could God be love if God wasn't a community? You know, you can't love unless you're in community, can you? You know, the statement, God is love, is completely pointless and meaningless unless God is community. Love can only exist when you love another. So God is love, and that badge uh, sums all of that up. And what I see, you know, uh, around Oasis now, you know, it's, it's amazing the developments that, that take place. So, for instance, something I was involved in a little bit last week that I didn't say because there were lo there was loads <laughs> of things, but um, uh, we are going to... I, I, I went with Joy Medeiros, who you'll know. Joy is the genius of Oasis, actually. She's the brains of Oasis. I always say, I've worked with Joy for well over 20 years, and I always say, I'm the brawn and Joy's the brains, you know. So I come up with ideas, it's true, and I half of them are stupid, and Joy says, that's stupid. And then the other half, she goes, oh, yeah, I think we might be able to do something about that. And then, you know, she's great um, processor. Uh, joy, but we went to see the government together, um, the, the D Department of Education, one day last week. Um, th these last seven days, because we have been offered a giant uh, site in South London. Uh, 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 somebody rang me up in uh, a few months ago in the pandemic and said, "There's this school here, and it's going to shut, and all the rest of it." But they said, "We own all the land." We've owned it since the 1600s. Um, what could you do with it? And I said, I think we should start with you a therapeutic school for girls. Because girls dropping out of education is a huge issue in self-harm and Instagram and all of that stuff. All that I mean, it's just a colossal issue across the country. Well, um, so that's gone forward, and, and Joy and I went to the DfE, Department for Education, this week, because they have to sign this off, and they signed it off this week. So we'll develop that over the next, next couple of years, and uh, lots of people are getting involved with it now. So what's exciting in Oasis is that passion to live out what it means to be the circle of inclusion yep. is huge. Outside of Oasis, I think there are loads of great signs. I mean, you know, we're a tiny piddly thing, aren't we, in the big world? And I think it's easy to think, oh, you know, everything's bad. You turn on the news. I listen to Radio 4 in the mornings and everything's going wrong and, you know, the government's terrible and, you know, uh, and there's, you know, when we're a corrupt country and, you know, it's, it's, it's all about sleaze and all the rest of it. I get all that. But I also think that we live in an age of incredible transparency. Do you know, um, people se selling peerages 
You know, we think, oh, you know, pay two million pounds, become a lord and all the rest. That's terrible. Do you know, if you go back to the beginning of the 1900s, that's the only way you got into the lords, unless you were already landed gentry. They were all sold. It was just the way it was. There's a, there's a sense in which social media, and there's loads, so many negatives to, to say about social media, social media is, ho- is holding people to account I think, more than before. So there's the bad side of social media, but I think there's a huge positive in the transparency Mm -hmm. that is coming to society as well. Mm, Definitely. Yeah. Okay. I want to make sure that we've got plenty of time. Sorry, I'll wrap it up. No, no, you didn't. It's all all good. Um, No one ever gets rounds of applause, Steve, during this. You've got (laughs) two, so I think it's going all right. Um, so I want to make sure that we've got plenty of time to, to ask Steve your question. So on the uh, tables, there are little pieces of paper and pens. And if you're not sat around a table, there's a spare stash just in the corner over there on the sort of white um, thing. You'll find them. Um, and we're just going to have a sort of five-minute break now so you can nip to the loo, top up coffee. But if you do have a question for Steve, if you can write it on your piece of paper and just come and leave it on that step and then I'll kind of quickly filter through those and hopefully we'll have some similar ones so we'll be able to get quite uh, through quite a few of them. So we'll, we'll take a five minute break now um, and so we'll come back together um, just before ten past eleven. Okay, we're going to make a start again just because there are so many good questions. I want to make sure that we can get through as many of them as we can. So there's your coffee, Steve. Don't kick that over. <laughs> um, thank you very much, everyone. These are great questions. And just to let you know, my process of selection is not to not do the ones that are the most controversial. I tend to pick those first, actually. <laughs> um, but what I tend to do is I tend to prioritise the ones that perhaps, you know, if two or three people have asked something similar, it kind of means... Um, yeah, and we'll just get through as many uh, as we can. But if you if your question wasn't answered, um, Steve will be around for a little bit afterwards, so don't feel like you can't go and ask him. He's very approachable. <laughs> um, brilliant. So we'll get started. First question then, and this is sort of two questions together. Somebody said, how, how do you think we should interpret the Bible? Um, and somebody else used the term, you know, what does it mean now to be a Bible-believing Christian? So maybe you can kind of merge those two. Well, yeah, that's two good questions. The Bible is not a book. It just looks like a book. And that is the problem. Because when you pick up a book, you expect what it says in chapter 1 to concur with what it says in chapter 20 or chapter 37. Books, we tend to think, have one plot and one author. The Bible is not a book. And most people through history have understood that. But over the last, since the Victorian era, particularly, We've not understood it. When did the Bible become a book? After the invention of the printing press. But not even then, because the printing press was the new media that only the very powerful and rich could afford. It wasn't until Victorian times that books became to a penny, which is why junk shops are filled with old books going back to Victorian times, but not beyond. Um, So the Bible became a book, and there's a problem with that, like I say, because the Bible's not a book. The term Bible, the word Bible, as I'm sure you all know, means library. And if you don't know, you know, if you speak French, for instance, you know, that's clear. 
But if you don't know that, all you've got to do is look inside the front cover and the first page says, the books of the Bible are, and then it lists them. So the Bible is a library. Now, a library is different to a book because a library contains different opinions. So if you went to the local library and, you know, if you're a student and you're doing biology, human biology, and you go look at the human biology section, you'd expect all of those books in the human biology section to agree on certain core principles. But depending on whether the book was written in the 1950s or the 1990s or in 2010, and depending on who the book was written by and what their experience was and what their particular expertise was, you'd also expect them to be saying different things. In fact, that's why you go to a library. What's the point in studying a library unless you want to get different views and opinions on board? If you read the Bible, the library of books, those books in what we call the Bible, remember what we call the Bible is slightly different to what Catholics call the Bible. They've got 73 books in their Bible. We've only got 66 in ours. Orthodox churches have more books than that. The longest Bible in the world is the Ethiopian Orthodox Bible, which has got 85 Bibles books in I think I remember so even when we say we believe the bible we, we're saying we believe in a library of sacred books now the truth is that over the the course of the years the centuries um, the millennia most of the books that make up this library this sacred library we have were, were settled on very very early by the early Christians the fixity of the Bible didn't come about until the printing press. So, I guess you've all heard of Martin Luther, you know, the great reformer. Which book of the Bible did Luther wish wasn't in it? Which book did he claim shouldn't be in it? Actually, it was several, but the one that is well known. Does anyone know which book of the Bible didn't Luther? Levit James, yeah, he didn't like, actually he didn't like Revelation and various others, but he didn't like uh, the book of James because it says faith without works is dead. And he wanted to say you're saved by your faith. So he claimed it shouldn't be part of the Bible. And everybody knows that. And they go, well, well Luther's a great Protestant reformer. Imagine I came along, right, and said, do you know, I really don't like the book of Ephesians. I think it shouldn't be in there. Now, that would be, a, 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 that would create an argument. So how come Luther got away with it in the 1500s? Because the Bible wasn't fixed. It didn't become fixed and its order of books and the books that were in it till the printing press. It was the printer that fixed it because the printers rang up and said, well, they didn't ring up, but you know what I mean? They, they said... Hey, guys, which ones do you want in and which order do they come in? Now, the point is, Joe, that the point is that th these books that make up the library are written in different times by different orders, authors and have different outlooks. So, just one, right? If you read the book of Nehemiah, which is really, um, it, it's really a diary, the book of Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah's diary. He's the guy who rebuilt Jerusalem after it had been destroyed. You know, rebuilt the walls. And I'm sure those of you who've been hanging around churches for years would have heard sermon series on Nehemiah the leader. Nehemiah and leader, Nehemiah and doubt, Nehemiah and building team, Nehemiah and vision, Nehemiah and prayer, and all that kind of stuff. 
You never, ever heard, I think, a sermon on the last chapter of Nehemiah. Because if you read it, it's chapter 13, by the way. Check it out when you get home. You could only call it the leader and abuse. Because in it, Nehemiah, having built the walls of the city, goes round and he says, and I discover that some of those, these men of Israel had married from tribes outside of Israel. I discovered people who were married to Moabitesses. Ah, and I grabbed, read it when you get home. I grabbed them by the hair, grabbed them by the hair, and I threw them out of the city. Now, Nehemiah's book is in the library. It's very near another book called Ruth, which is all about a Moabitess woman who plays a central role in the whole biblical story. And it's right near a book called Isaiah. And Isaiah says, my house, Zion, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple, shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. In the New Testament, Jesus quotes Isaiah. My prayer shall be a house of prayer for all the peoples. But he doesn't quote Nehemiah. In other words, the Bible's got loads of differences. And what, to read it well, we have to understand it's not saying one uniform thing. In fact, sorry, Joe, because I'm practicing. This is on. question one, Steve. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> so the Bible is, by nature of it being a library and having different voices, and it's got different voices around lots of things, which I won't go into because it will take up a lot of time. What the point is. So there's two theories, aren't there? That when the, when the people who compiled the Bible compiled the Bible, we call it the process of canonization, the guys who put it together didn't bother reading any of these books, just lumped it all in there and went afterwards, oh, blimey, it's got some differences. We didn't mean that. Or, and that's a stupid idea, that the process of canonization happened over hundreds of years anyway. Thousands of, thousands of years, one and a half thousand years. But, um, but here's the thing. The only other alternative is they did it purposely. They actually put books together into this sacred library with different opinions, which means that at the heart of our faith, this, even the Bible calls us to debate and to discuss and to dialogue it calls us to a place where that great discussion we should have about assisted dying or about inclusion of any one particular group or about faith and autism, it's, it's sanctified by the Bible. It's part of our duty to discuss graciously with one another. Does that make sense? Yeah. I've probably only half said those things because <laughs> I've tried to cram a lot in. So forgive me for anything I've not said that I should have. That's cool. Um, okay, next one. With all this incredible social or community action, how much do you think church services still have significance in society? I think the church is... I was thinking about this driving down this morning. The church is key. The funny thing is the government have just, um, have just set aside a load of money to build family hubs. Have you, 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 some of you come across the phrase family hub? Well, there's some money available for doing it now, you know, from, from the Chancellor. 
And the constant uh, push is towards joined up integrated services in a community. You know that, don't you? We've got to get joined up. They've got to be integrated. And it's a push to think about holistic development as well. People's emotional and social needs as well as their physical needs. So all of that, depending on what sector you're working in, whether you're working in healthcare or education or whatever, your architecture, your you've got your own language for that because there's different languages, but you recognize that push, don't you? That is what the church is. I remember going into government some years ago, um, and uh, this wasn't under this present administration, and, uh, and I was sitting in an office, with, uh, sitting in a meeting with the Home Office, and uh, cutting a long story short, but someone said, you know, what we've got to do is we've got to invest in building centres in towns all over the country. Buildings, community buildings. If we build buildings right across the country where people can begin to gather and work together, this is genius. And, um, and then, then it was commissioned. And then we went, came back for another meeting and they'd actually costed how much they thought it would be. I remember the figure then. It was £15 billion to build this and they thought they could roll it out over 20 years. And I remember saying into the meeting, that's what churches already are. They're all over the country. They're already there and it's filled with people who care and give. The problem with professionalism is it looks past all of the amateur informal networks that exist. And when I say amateur, you know that's a French word too, and it means lover, you know? Uh, professionalism is about people who drive in, do their stuff while there's a grant going, and then clear off again. That's service delivery, and government talks a lot about service delivery. Community development is about ordinary people, you and me, getting together, working together. And the church is community. It's a Christ-centered community because communities without a vision perish, so but what? communities with a vision thrive. Yeah. So what's the place do you think of the Sunday service within that? Because obviously, mm. you know, particularly we were aware in this church, mm. you know, as well, that well, there's a lot that we do in the community. And, mm. and so why, why Sunday services well, still? Because gathering is really important. And in our culture, Sunday still, we've we got to do far more than Sunday, haven't we? But it's, you know, people say, oh, yeah, well, why gather on a Sunday at all? Well, why? Look, you're all here. Whereas if you gathered on Wednesday morning, you wouldn't be able to do the same. So in, in the church in Waterloo, a bit like your church building here, we've got a building with a socking great spire outside. Do you know? So when I arrived, there, there, were, there, were, three, well, there were several people. There were, there were ten uh, uh, elderly people who were part of the, uh, part of the church, actually. And um, they said we should stop meeting on Sunday because no one comes, because no one had come for years and years, and they were getting older. And I said, but if we shut down Sunday, people would still come to this building and knock on the door because it looks like a kind of building that you go to on a Sunday. It's a cultural thing that we've got going for us, and so we should use it. But it's the gathering together and the being together 
in Christ's name, whether you do it on a Thursday or a Tuesday or in the evening or the morning. We've got to explore all of that and do all of that, and I'm sure you are doing all of that, but not despise something in our culture which still hands to us an opportunity, in my view. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, please, can you say a little more about your message to young people at COP26 and what gives you hope regarding their future? Oh, well, um, it, was, it, was re- it was really uh, a- an interesting thing because um, I spoke into this thing where uh, other young people s- uh, spoke. In fact, I took someone with us who was a, a student from, well, an ex-student from one of our schools in Bristol, Oasis Academy, John Williams. And, um, and uh, she uh, is now working for Marvin Reese, who's the mayor of, of Bristol. And, uh, and Marvin is really into uh, it, it doing a lot of work with Harvard around climate change, etc. And she is now employed by Marvin to work on all of this stuff. So I, t- I took her. It's what she does all the time. And I, I, I arranged it for her to speak. And she was absolutely brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. So here's the thing I've learned in life. And then I'll tell you what I said. You know, the first thing in life as everybody says, is to employ people who are smarter than you, you know, yeah? And everybody knows that. But the second important lesson, which people don't know, is when you've employed them, don't disagree with them. Follow their advice. Get smarter people around you and then listen to what they've got to say. So, um, so she spoke and others, and the thing is, you know, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm a generalist. You know, I I talk to you about children's homes and the underfunding, and I can talk to you about unregulated children's homes and the problems that causes and the exploitation that exists, but I can't tell you about the budgets and all the rest of it, you know? Does that make sense? So I'm not an expert in anything. That's one of the losses, actually, to me, of, of, of Oasis, um, that you have to, I've had to specialise in generalism, it, it, you know, and I've lost the depth of knowledge in any one thing. So what I did at COP26 is um, she spoke and one or two others about the various, uh, yeah, var- various bits of this, you know, so you can talk about reusing and waste and electricity and f- uh, 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 photovoltaic cells, et cetera, et cetera, all sorts of things, can't you? And so, and then I kind of summed it up, you know, this discussion, and this is what I said to them, you'll be surprised. I said, do you know something? It's true that, I said, and you can watch a thousand videos on this on Google straight after this. If you take a flea, which can jump 150 times its height, and you put it in a jar, I mean, if a flea was a human being, it could leap the shard without a run-up. Do you know? They, 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 and they jump all the time. But if you put a flea in a jam jar, it jumps right out. If you put a flea in a jam jar and screw the lid on, it will jump and smash its head against the, the lid. But it won't learn. It will keep doing it. That's what fleas do all the time. They just jump, 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 jump. Um, and we now know that a flea will jump for about 48 hours, smashing its head against the jam jar lid 
all the time. And then it will learn. And it will learn to always stop short of the lid. And it will never, ever, in its life cycle, in its life again, hit its head on the lid because it's learned to always stop short. But here's the thing. If you take the lid off the jar and remove it, the flea or fleas, the lid's now gone. They will never, ever jump to the height of the lid, even though the lid doesn't exist anymore. And if you take the fleas and you tip them out of the jar and place them in any environment, they will never, ever in their lives attempt to jump higher than where the lid used to be of the jar that they used to live in. And when they have offspring, their offspring, who've never even seen the jar or the lid, will never jump higher than where their parents used to jump to when they lived in a jar. And it was true of their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren. And what I said to these kids is, jump out of the jar. Jump out of the jar. Until someone in your life, and this is true of you, and it's true of me, tells you, you can't do that, that's impossible. And until people say to you, you can't turn this church around like that, you'll never do that, that won't work, dog, oh, be sensible. Until someone's saying that to you, you know you're not doing anything worthwhile. Right? If everyone says, it's perfectly reasonable, Joe, it's perfectly, I think, yeah, that's perfectly sober and reasonable. Abandon your plan and get a new one. Because. We have to jump out of the jar together. That's what I said to these kids. Right. What a brilliant thing to end on. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. 